verse study of Ephesians chapter 4. And we come now to a very, very practical portion of Ephesians 4. Last time when we were together, last week in fact, we dealt with the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to deal with the next three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. But in order for us to catch all of this first section, let's go ahead and read from chapter 4, verses 1, all the way through verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, going all the way through to verse 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, And in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor-teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When I preached last Sunday evening on the first three verses, you'll notice that we talked about six Christian virtues that believers ought to have in the body of Christ, in the church, as they're ministering together. And those six virtues are, according to verse 2, Humility, gentleness, patience, and then bearing with one another in love, or we could say tolerance. Eager, excuse me, in love, which would be the the fourth, uh, fifth, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have listed there humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace. Six Christian virtues which occupied our time last Lord's Day evening. And when we talked about those things, we talked about the fact 
that they are critical for the horizontal body of Christ doing what it should be doing with each other and doing it in the way that makes us distinct from the way the world interacts with itself. And I think what the Apostle Paul is doing in verses 4, 5, and 6 is he's turning a bit of a corner and he's saying not only are these horizontal Christian virtues as they are worked out among believers in the body of Christ, but there are also the kinds of realities that the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bring about in an organic unity from a vertical perspective. So horizontally, we're to have virtues that occupy us, that is humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace. And we also have as an organic unity what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit brings about vertically that unites us to each other. And that's where Paul picks up with those realities in verses 4, 5, and 6. And you notice that he does so by using that word one seven times. Seven times. In fact, your English translations will undoubtedly have, as mine does here in the ESV, the first two words in the English text of chapter 4, verse 4, there is, right? There is. Well, in the Greek text of this portion of Scripture, there is no verb. So that when Paul finishes what he's saying about humility, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace, in chapter 4, verse 4, he goes right into this statement. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So that if you read it very literally, you have Paul talking horizontally about humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace, and immediately saying organically and from a vertical perspective, here's what the Trinity, here's what the Godhead produces in this body of Christ, the reality that we are one body, in one spirit, with one hope, belonging to the one Lord, having one faith, affirming one baptism under one God and Father of all. Now that's an amazing, amazing reality that captures the essence of how the body of Christ is to interact with each other on a horizontal level, with gentleness, humility, and patience, with with the kind of tolerance, love, and peace that we talked about last time, and then vertically, the only reason we can have such a horizontal relationship with each other is because there is an organic unity that God brings about because of our oneness in Christ. And that's how Paul characterizes in the first portion of this practical section of the book of Ephesians that is ours to understand and to live out. So let's dig in to these seven spiritual realities of our oneness. The seven realities of our unity in Christ. First, he says, there is one body. One body. That's the first of the seven. 
And do you realize that the metaphors that talk about the people of God from both Testaments, from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know that there are several parallels when those metaphors are applied to the Old Testament people of God and to the New Testament people of God. It's not hard to see why the body of Christ is also called a building, because in the Old Testament there was a sense that the people of God were like a building. There's a sense in which you look at the New Testament people of God and you see them as sheep in the sheepfold. Well, that's not not hard to figure it out at all because in the Old Testament economy, there were the sheep, the people of God, under their head, Yahweh, the Father. And those are but two examples of the reality of how we are likened to the Old Testament people of God in a New Testament covenantal sense. But did you understand that among those two metaphors and so many others that are characteristic of both Testaments, that the metaphor of the body of Christ is never mentioned in the Old Testament? Never mentioned. It is unique. And why would it be unique? Well, even though it's true that in the Old Testament... The Israelites, the people of God, called by Yahweh God to be His own. They are my people. I will dwell in the midst of them. They had Gentile proselytes who became a part of the nation of Israel because they adopted Judaism as their religion. And they immersed themselves as Jews in the law of God. So there was a sense in which Gentiles joined the Jews. It was very limited. And there were a lot of things that that the Gentiles had to give up in order to be Jews in that Old Covenant sense. But when you come to the New Testament, there is this one metaphor called the body, the body of Christ, that is completely new. It had never before been understood in our Old Testaments to mean, to be explained by, how believing Jews in their Messiah and believing Gentiles in Jesus the Christ were brought together as one body. That's why, by the way, in chapter 2, you have Paul talking about this mystery and the newness of this mystery being God bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles into the one body of Christ. That was a mystery. It had never before been revealed in the Old Testament in exactly this way. So when Paul begins here to talk about one body, he's talking about a new thing that had never before been defined or activated with the people of God. One body. You want to see some other references to this idea of one body in the book of Ephesians? Look back at chapter 1. Verse 22. And He, God, the Father, put all things under His, that is Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. And how is the church defined there in verse 23? Which is His body, the the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This was radical teaching, my friends. Radical teaching. There was never a sense 
with the development of the body of Christ in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, there was never a sense that someone could have understood what was about to happen when the body of Christ was being formed. The Holy Spirit, when He brought tongues upon all of those, those Jewish patriots who were coming into Jerusalem at Pentecost to give their alms, to give their money, to sacrifice their animals, and when the body of Christ was being formed, and when those tongues were put on those men and women so that they could hear the gospel in their own language, and the Holy Spirit began to form the body of Christ for the first time ever in history, it was a new thing in Israel. And it was a new thing for Gentiles as well. In fact, the whole book of Acts is the sweeping understanding, the revelation of how Jews and Gentiles were being brought into the one body of Christ. And Paul is describing it here. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Referring to Christ, Ephesians 2:14, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. As I've told you before in this study of the book of Ephesians, there was great hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's no secret about that. They hated one another. And now because of the peace of Christ, that is the peace of his cross, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. This is an amazing organic unity where Jews and Gentiles are being brought together in one body. Look at verse 19. We're now being called fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a mystery, Paul says, and I'm revealing it to you because it's been revealed to me. Chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I can't imagine that there weren't a few Jews and certainly all of the Gentiles who are saying, what's this one body? What, what does this mean? And how does it flesh itself out? We're, we're supposed to be hating them and we know that they hate us. How is it that we're now being brought by Christ into the same body? What is this body metaphor? And when Paul begins to flesh out the body metaphor, he begins to say something like this. Now, when you come together as the church, the body of Christ, I want there to be gentleness and humility and patience and tolerance and love and peace. And when I tell you that that's what's supposed to happen, these are commands for you to carry out among each other on a horizontal level, it's because, my friends, God supernaturally has brought you to a place where there is no longer hostility between the two races of the world. There are only two back then, Jews and Gentiles. Oh, there might have been a lot of ethnicities that are being made up within the class of Gentiles, but in the reality of it all, there were Jews and non-Jews. 
And Paul was saying, here's this amazing thing that God has done. He has brought the two into one new man, into the one body. And that's what he means in chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body. Number two, there is one spirit. One spirit. Now, it's not hard to figure out who's being referred to here. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is why... This particular section, just three verses, 4, 5, and 6, is so important because there is a Trinitarian engendered unity. I'll say it again. There is a Trinitarian engendered unity that he's referring to here. And here he's going from bottom to top or from three to one. He's saying first, not the Father, but the Holy Spirit. And this may be because this is the way they experienced it. Remember this morning I talked about the new birth of the believer. He's been born again. He's been born from above. And how does the believer experience that? Well, he experiences it by the Holy Spirit bringing him to new life. So your first experience as a Christian is really not to the Father, but it's to the Holy Spirit who brings you to a place of new birth for you to understand the spiritual realities of sin and redemption, of the confession of sin and the the making of yourself right with Christ by His grace through faith. And so, maybe Paul's talking about this organic unity in this Trinitarian engendered unity by talking about the Holy Spirit first. And he does. And he says, there is one Spirit. What does he mean by that phrase? He means to say that this body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, are being brought together supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. I already told you in Acts chapter 2, it was the Holy Spirit who brought tongues of fire down upon those in Jerusalem that day. It was the Holy Spirit being used by Jesus Christ as His instrument to bring about the very forming of the body of Christ. And so it is true to say that the Holy Spirit is the one within that Trinitarian context who is in first place here, talking about the unity, the organic unity of the body of Christ. And he's talked about the Holy Spirit already. Look at what he said in chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit seals us with a promise that we will have an inheritance one day and we will be in full possession of it one day to the praise of the glory of God. Notice what he says about the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 18. For through Him, through the peace of Christ, through the cross of Christ, we have both access, now Jews and Gentiles, in one Spirit to the Father. The Spirit brings Jews and Gentiles together. And He gives us, this Holy Spirit, access by Christ to the Father. See the Trinity at work there? And look at chapter 3, verse 12 in whom we have boldness through Christ and access with confidence through our faith in Him. That's brought to us, according to chapter 2, verse 18, in one Spirit. And then chapter 4, 
down in verse 30. Here's the organic unity of the Spirit at work in our fellowship. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, my friends, when we talk about church, when we talk about coming to church, it's not coming into a building, it's the people, right? I mean, this is a building, it's a beautiful building that we can meet in, it has four walls and a roof, but other than that, that's pretty much what it is. The church is bound together by human beings who have been formed by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which you and I are members. And the Holy Spirit seals us to the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit is not to be grieved because He is to be honored as God. And then in chapter 5, verse 18, we should not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or excess, but rather we should be filled, or I like to say controlled, with or by the Spirit. Why is the Spirit at work in us? So that we would be controlled by that Spirit. We're no longer a part of the world. We've been pulled out of the world and we're serving Christ and we're serving each other in that horizontal gentleness and patience and humility and tolerance and love and peace. And we do so because the Spirit of God has changed us. We're no longer stepping on each other to get up the ladder of success. We're no no longer backbiting one another because we don't like the way they are. We're not like the world. We don't do what the world does. We've given up on those things because the Holy Spirit has been working in our hearts. And when we are challenged to not do those things that we are commanded by Paul to do, when we're challenged not to be humble and gentle and patient and have tolerance and love and peace, when we're challenged on that, we're going to be challenged by Satan himself and by his minions, by his demons, to rebel against one another, to backbite one another, to steal and lie about one another. And that's why the Holy Spirit is said in chapter 6, Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. That means in accordance with the will of the Spirit, according to the Word of God, with all prayer and supplication. One body, one Spirit. And see, when you study the book of Ephesians, and when you find all of these references to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can understand, no wonder he says, one Spirit. No wonder he talks about this organic unity. This is what the Spirit is building in our midst. He's building a unity, not just on a horizontal level, but he's building the theology of the vertical relationship that the Spirit of God is making and remaking us, choosing to take our former spirits, our former lives, and transforming them into lives of obedience which are in accordance with what the Spirit wants to do in us and through us as a witness to the world. One body, one Spirit. Number three, he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now he's just talked about the call in chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore I as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what's the calling as he represents it here? Our one hope. That's the title of the message tonight. Our one hope. 
And what might you assume he means by this hope? It's the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It's the hope of our unity. It's the hope of our future together in heaven. It's the hope that Christ is transforming our lives. It's the hope that the Spirit is engendering in us a love for one another so that we're not fighting like those in the world. I often tell my own children when they are spatting with one another, hey, that's not what we're about. That's not what we do. This, is, this may be what the world does. This is, this is maybe what they're doing to get ahead or to stomp on one another or to be critical of one another or to be negative about one another. This is not what we're about. We are a Christian family, and it's not just Christian family in name only. It's the kind of Christianity that means something. It's the kind of Christianity that moves in front of one another because you want to lead by serving them. You want to be available to minister to them. You want to be more encouraging. You want to help. And you do that same thing when you're in the church. Even when you're in this building, you want to help one another. You want to help those who are in need. You want to reach out to them. And you do that because you have this hope that we're all going to be spending eternity together. And if we're going to be spending eternity together, we ought to figure out how to get along now. Right? The one hope of our calling. It's the hope of heaven. It's the hope of reconciliation. It's the hope of faith. It's, it's the hope of our working together in the body of Christ to accomplish great things for Christ. It's the hope of who we are in Christ that we are believers, that we do love one another, that we are about serving one another. We're not about stepping on each other. We're not about pushing each other out of the way. We're not about uh, making snide remarks about one another. We're not about backbiting one another and criticizing one another. We're about using our minds, our hearts, and even our mouths to encourage one another to say to each other, there's a hope of heaven that awaits us. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is going to return soon? Aren't you overjoyed at the fact that your sins are forgiven? Aren't you ecstatic about the concept that God is making of us, the body of Christ, this heretofore ragtag bunch of disparate believers, that God is making something of us? That's why we come to church every Sunday. That's why we serve one another. That's why we want the world to know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ who have love for one another. That's our hope. That's the hope of our calling. Paul's talked about this in Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. There's hope and calling in the same verse, just like our own text. And then in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, Paul says, that you were at that time separated from Christ, talking about these Gentiles, before Christ, before they were Christians, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. You and I have been there. You and I have known what it means to have no hope. No hope in Christ. And now we live for the hope 
that we have in Christ. I was talking at a lunch opportunity, my wife and I, with a dear saint who's in this fellowship, who's here right now. And when we got in the car afterwards, we said, what a sweet lady in Christ. What a person who has hope in Christ. What a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ with a full love, with an excitement, an exuberance. I mean, there are so many Christians that you and I meet who look as, about as gloom and doom as possible. You've seen them with furrowed brows who you wonder if they had any hope in Christ at all. And yet, when we get together and fellowship and we smile and we talk about the things that matter, it's because we have this hope. We're not like these who are unbelievers who have no hope and without God in the world. This is, this is an amazing hope that we have in Christ. We have one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to our calling as Christians. And then he says in verse 5, one Lord. One Lord. Number four. And because he's already talked about the Holy Spirit, and because God the Father is going to be talked about, who do you think this is referring to when it says one Lord? The Lord Jesus. And he's all over the book of Ephesians. He's all over our New Testaments. And he's called Lord. Can you imagine how criticized and how undermined these Gentiles might have been to say nothing of the Jews of the first century when they called Jesus Lord? Curios. Now, it could be a diminutive reference. It could be to someone that you would just as well say, Sir. That's a rendering of curios. But clearly, Christologically, in our New Testaments, and here in the book of Ephesians especially, when it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about someone who's more than just a sir. It's talking about someone who's exalted. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. He's Master. He's God in human flesh. In chapter 1, in that great prayer of Paul, he says, I want you to know, verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that name that is above every name is the name Lord. That's Philippians 2. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when God raised him up from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, he declared, Jesus is Lord. Book of Acts. God the Father made Christ Lord. Made him sovereign. Made him sovereign over all the skies. He made him sovereign over all rule and all authority and all dominion and all power. Those are, those are ways of speaking about angelic beings, and in some contexts, evil, wicked, demonic beings in which Christ is said to be the sovereign Lord. And in the book of Ephesians, there was black magic that was going on. They were worshiping Artemis, the other name Diana. 
She was supposed to be the one who was the queen of all queens. She was supposed to be the one who was ruling the lives of her subjects and that you would go to her and that you would ask her for help and assistance. And she also had her minions. And this was rife in Ephesus. And Paul comes along and says to these who've been converted to Christ, it's not Artemis, it's not Diana, it's Christ as Lord. He's your one Lord. And you're his subjects, you're his slaves. So in addition to one body, one spirit, one hope, and one Lord, number five, one faith. One faith. Now there are wrestlings within commentaries that say, is he talking subjectively here or objectively? Objectively, it would be one faith in the sense that faith is that body of doctrine, that body of truth that we as Christians commonly confess. It may be that reference that you see there when it talks about in chapter 4 verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That would be a confession of a body of doctrine, specifically Christology, the study of Christ, Christ as Lord, Christ as as lawgiver, Christ as redeemer, the idea that we are confessing a truth or truths that back up the reality that we are one in Christ. We all believe the same thing. Some commentators say, no, this reference is probably to a more subjective reference, which means it is each and every individual person in Ephesus, and it is their individual personal affirmation of Jesus Christ. It's subjective in the sense that I've put my faith, my trust, my confidence in Christ. You say, which one is it, Interpreter Lance? I have no idea. I have no idea. Can't tell. But what I can tell you is that there are several references to the idea of the Ephesians and they're putting their faith in Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love Toward all the saints. So if Paul's referring in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 to this kind of faith, then it's affirmed in chapter 1, verse 15. They have put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And look at what he says in his prayer just a few verses later in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Who believe? That's our unified faith. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. One faith. Yes, it is our one faith in uniformity, in great unity, in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Faith. 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 He says in that great armor of God, Section in chapter 6, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If he's talking about one faith and he's talking about the individual faiths, the beliefs of all of these Ephesians, and he probably is, then he's saying this. We all have one faith. It's not just one guy saying, well, I believe in Jesus and another guy who's in the church who says, yeah, but I'm still convinced that maybe Artemis is the way to go. Not at all. No, he's saying 
you are truly unified because you all have a common faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the reason he ends in chapter 6 with verse, verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith. And then number six, one baptism. One baptism. Now if you think it's hard to try to determine interpretively what one faith is, is it subjective or objective, then what about one baptism? Is he talking about water baptism? I don't think so. Because if he were talking about water baptism there, one baptism, even though baptism was incredibly important as an outward sign of your your testimony of faith in Christ, and you knew what you were doing when you were standing in those waters of baptism because you were likely either going to be ostracized, persecuted, maybe even imprisoned, or perhaps even killed. That was what was going on as you publicly demonstrated in the waters of baptism your faith in Christ. But I don't think it's that because if he had included this idea of one water baptism, he probably would have made that more clearer here, plus he left out one Lord's Supper, right? One communion. It's not listed here. And those, of course, are two, the two ordinances of the church. Well, is he talking about spiritual baptism here? That is, that we are dipped, as it were, into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2. We are the body of Christ, and we have been baptized into that body by the Holy Spirit's power on the day of Pentecost. Is he referring to that? Perhaps. But maybe we could settle it this way. Maybe he's talking about both. Maybe he's saying that the literal reality of your water baptism is declaring an inward reality of your faith in Christ, one faith that is seen in the waters of baptism, but not simply that, it's actually the water baptism which gives evidence from an outward reality of what you're saying by your own testimony because it's already occurred, spiritually speaking, because of your spirit baptism. Maybe he's talking about the idea that spiritually speaking, you are baptized into the body of Christ, it's proclaimed in space and time when you're water baptized, and you have one baptism. Everybody who is a part of the body of Christ should be baptized. And everybody who's baptized is giving evidence that the Spirit is dipping them or has dipped them already in the body of Christ. One last one. Verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a way to wrap it up. What a way to wrap it up. Here's the Trinitarian Godhead. Here's the Father. Here's the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And here's the Holy Spirit. You first come in contact and experience with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit points you to Christ. And in Christ you find out that His cross has been efficacious for you. You're saved by that cross. And you glory in Christ. And Christ turns around and points to the Father. And then you and I say, praise God, the God and Father of all. That means He's the God and Father of all believers 
who is over all, which means he's sovereign over all believers, including the church, and he's through all, which means he is the resident through the person of the Holy Spirit by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church, and he is in all, which means that he is the unifying factor of everything. My friends, to have a horizontal unity which includes humility, gentleness, and patience, tolerance, love, and peace, and then to have this vertical reality of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, should solidify us forever and ever that there is no reason for us to be disunified. No reason. No reason experientially and horizontally and no reason vertically to disaffirm what is true and what is our common confession that we believe in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. This is what we believe. This is what we affirm. And this is the way we live. If this is not the way you live, it may be because you're not a part of the body of Christ. Maybe you kick against these things. Maybe you say, well, I'm not so sure about this kind of unity. Well, let me encourage you tonight as we close that if you are looking in the mirror of the Word of God and you see the truth of these things, six things that are talked about horizontally speaking, the way we ought to be with one another, and seven things that give a standing for all of us to affirm our unity together. My friends, you're on the outside looking in. And you ought to come to Christ. You ought to repent of your sins. You ought to place your confidence in no one else but Christ. Turn from your sin. Just like we talked about this morning in John 3.16. Believing in Christ, the the one, the only one who has died for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. And for those of you who are believers and you're rejoicing in the truth of this unity because you love Christ, because you want this unity, because you want to be horizontally right with everybody in this fellowship, and because you realize that all that oneness that Paul speaks about is true, And it is right. And it is for us all the more reason to sing praises to Him because He is one Lord, one Spirit, and one God and Father. Let's pray together. Father, we are so joyously praising You because if our hearts are loving You, and believing You and are affirming these oneness realities, then it motivates us to be right with each other, to have that humility and gentleness, patience, tolerance, love and peace. And I pray, Father, that horizontally and vertically we would affirm and live out the truths, the practical truths, that Paul calls upon us here to live out. And may we do it for the glory of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord, and the Father. In that great, strong, Trinitarian name we pray. Amen.
Well, let's conclude this evening's worship with one more uh, hymn selected from the congregation. So if any of you have an idea, please raise your hand or say out the name, uh, the number of the hymn. Yes. Number 305. So let's all stand together and turn to hymn number 305. 